Well, good morning, Lindsley Avenue. Good morning. Good to see everyone here today. We're glad you're here. And we hope you will find the rest of this week to be as pleasant as today, I think, is starting out to be. We're finishing our series that we've been doing all month on heroes. And we talked about Nehemiah, we've talked about uh, Miriam, and we've also talked about Elijah. This morning we're going to talk about Esther. And in a very unusual way, the book of Esther and the story of Esther is one of my favorite in the entire Old Testament. And I'll explain that as we get into it a little later. But I want to point out two things. One to be the underlying message from the book of Esther that we'll talk about, but also to point out a fairly important lesson, I believe, from this past Wednesday night's class. And if you haven't had the opportunity to see that yet, that is on the church's Facebook page, Lindsley Avenue's Facebook page, where we talked about, in my opinion, the most important woman in the Old Testament whose name you do not probably know. And nobody who was there knew the name. Nobody pulled it out. Robbie wants to claim she was about to tell me the name. But uh, <laughs> close on the counts in, in horseshoes. But uh, the name was a prophet from the Old Testament by the name of Huldah, a female prophet. And the reason she was so important is because for the first time that's recorded in the Old Testament, someone pointed to a written word on a page and indicated that those words on the page were God's words. It had never happened before in the entire Old Testament. <clears throat> Josiah had heard a reading from the Bible Huldah says, when you heard his words, the words he had heard had been read off the page, God was speaking to Josiah through the words that were written on a page. Well, that's important to me today. That's important to you today. Because we are hearing from God through the words on a page. Just as Huldah had said 2,500 years ago. Well, this morning, there's a similar underlying lesson. See if you can spot it before we get to it at the very end. That comes out of the story of Esther that applies to us directly today as well. But let's get into the hero aspect of the story of Esther. The book of Esther in the Old Testament relates the history of God's people again during the Persian Empire days, just like Nehemiah had been last week. The king, Ahasuerus, or also known in history as Xerxes I, was seeking a new wife. A number of young women were gathered together, and as part of that process of becoming uh, potentially the new wife of the king, they went through a year-long spa treatment, more or less, to prepare to go before the king. Uh, ladies, you may be looking forward from time to time to a spa treatment somewhere. Maybe it lasts an afternoon, an hour or two. Imagine a year-long spa treatment. They were wanting to make sure that the ladies being brought before the king, apparently for him to choose who his new queen was going to be, had been pampered for a whole year. That's inconceivable to me. Uh, I, I get five minutes for a haircut, and that's about the only improvement I can find. <laughs> But a year long, a year long. Esther herself was an orphan Jewish woman. An orphan Jewish woman living with her uncle named Mordecai. Uncle Mordecai. She's chosen to be among these women as potentially the new wife of the king. Now, knowing the history and the times, she's almost certainly a very young woman. 
marrying age was typically 13 to 15. So when we think of Esther, uh, in the past I know I thought she was this 25, 30-year-old woman or perhaps something like that with a few more years of experience and maturity under her. But she's almost certainly a young woman. The, the book of Esther really doesn't tell us how old she is. From history, I would really think we're pretty safe in assuming she's 13 to 15. I mean, that's an early teenager. But that's who she is. And she has chosen to be among these, this group of women who are potentially going to be the new queen to King Xerxes, Ahasuerus. Her uncle Mordecai, right, her father figure in this story, her uncle Mordecai had urged her to keep quiet about the fact that she was a Jewish woman, that she was Jewish. The Jewish people had been carried away to captivity to Babylon. The Babylonians fell to the Persians, and many of the Jewish people, some had gone back, but many had stayed over in Babylon and then down in Susa, a little bit further over east in the modern-day area of Iran, and, and lived under the kingdom because the Persians were actually pretty nice to the peoples that lived under their kingdom, whether they were Persian or from some other place, unlike the Assyrians or an earlier group that had been ruled. She simply, he simply said, keep quiet about the fact that you're Jewish. You don't want the fact that you're from a Jewish background to potentially eliminate you from being considered for the queen position, to be the new wife of the king. Mordecai stayed in touch with Esther over this year-long spa treatment by essentially finding a place in the fence where they could talk. Uh, I like to think of somebody coming to someone who's behind a wall and talking through the wall. He kept meeting with her roughly every week or so to see how she was doing in the year. So they, they found a way as the, the uncle, as the father figure here, uh, to keep in touch with Esther when she was secluded in this year-long uh, preparation period. During the year, Esther gained the favor of the eunuch who was in charge of this group of women being prepared. Now that's similar in some ways to Daniel and uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they gained the favor of the person who was prepping them to work with the king of Babylon. So Esther gains the favor of the individual in charge of this year-long spot treatment. Here's what we read when this year-long spot treatment is over. Esther chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace, the king loved Esther more than all the women who had been in that spa treatment, right? Who had been in the preparatory position. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, more than all the other young women, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen. Esther becomes the queen of Persia the wife, the new wife of King Ahasuerus, Xerxes I. Xerxes is important historically because he's the king that went over and tried to invade Greece. So what we know from history, from high school and other places of the Spartans and the 300 and all, and Thermopylae Pass and all that kind of stuff, Xerxes is the one that goes over and tries to whoop up on the Greeks. But here, he has fallen in love with Queen Esther, makes her queen. Once she was queen, 
her uncle Mordecai discovered a plot that was underway to attempt to take out her husband, King Ahasuerus, in Esther 2, 21-23. So after she becomes queen, her uncle Mordecai determines there's a plot trying to kill the king. Picking up in verse 21, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, both men were hanged on the gallows. So by sitting in the gate, keeping his ears open, right? He discovers a plot to try to kill the king. He has a particularly easy way for an inside pack to let the king know about it because he tells Queen Esther, who tells the king, and it's investigated, and it turns out these two men of the household must have been angry at something that King Ahasuerus had done because they were trying to take him out. It's investigated, and who gets taken out? The two men do. They get hung on the gallows. So Mordecai is, in fact, honored. He is very honored for having come up with this information and saved the king. Continuing on in the story of Esther, there's another individual who shows up in the story, and his name is Haman. Haman is named more or less the second in command in the kingdom. Haman. King Ahasuerus sets Haman up to be the second in command. When Haman was being taken around the city of Susa, the capital city of the Persians, People bow down to him out of reverence and respect. Well, what do you think about that? That's the kind of thing that we would probably do if somebody in a position of power came in. I would hope we would do that regardless of any political feelings you might have. This is a person in a position of power. Whatever background they have, they are due respect. We are told to respect the king in the New Testament. So here, they bow down to him. That's the difference here. They're not really showing respect. The people, as Haman's being carried around the city, are bowing down to him, and the implication is getting on the ground. Getting on the ground. That's how much bowing down it was. Not a head nod, right, of a bow. We're talking about people getting down on the ground. People did that as Haman was carried around the city, except for Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't do it. Now, when you think about that, this is really not all that out of character for a Jewish person. Uh, bowing down to someone gave a feel of worship or too much reverence for a man, or for a woman, to another person. So many times, Jewish people would not do this. If they were going to bow down, it was to God. And several times in the Bible itself, people are in front of an angel or someone who is in a position of great authority and they will bow down to him and the person says, get up, because I am what? Also a man. I'm also a person like you. Do not bow down to me. I'm also a man. So that carries through the entire narrative story of the Bible. Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman. So as Haman, I like to think of him driving around the town. Maybe he's got the top down. He's driving around the town and what does he see? Everybody's bowing down. And who's, who's that guy over there standing up? You know, maybe he's just bowing and nodding his head at Haman as he goes around. Haman saw this person was standing up. Who was that guy? He finds out who it was. It angers Haman. Everybody's bowing down to me. Who does this guy think he is not bowing down to me? 
Given Mordecai's previous, previous discovery of the plot against King Ahasuerus, it's probably not a good idea for Haman to go and directly attack Mordecai. Mordecai, you know, maybe there's a plaque up in the palace. Uh, thanks to Mordecai for discovering the plot. Maybe he was given some special title, plot discoverer or something like that. Haman thinks, I've got to find a way to get him, but I can't really just go and directly attack Mordecai because of his honor that he had received. So it's not wise to go after him directly, but he begins to put a plot in motion to get rid of all the Jewish people. Haman discovers this fact that Mordecai is a Jew, so if I can't attack Mordecai directly, if I attack all the Jewish people, if I attack all the Jewish people, I'll get Mordecai. So that's what Haman does. What Haman does is this in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Haman, the second in command, talking to the king. Here's what he says. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered among, uh, abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. He's going to talk about the Jews. There's a certain people scattered among all our peoples throughout your kingdom. Their laws are different from the laws of all the other people. And they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Well, what did the Jewish people do that was different from all the other Persians? Well, they observed the Sabbath, so they weren't working on Saturday. And they had certain Jewish dietary laws that would have made them look different. The Jewish people always looked different when they were living among other peoples. Let me stop and say right there, we, as Christians, should look different when we are among people who are not followers of Jesus. We should be the first to show love and care and concern for people, not be goaded or guilted into being loving toward people as a final resort. Do I look different when I'm among a group of people who are not followers of Jesus? Maybe that's a question we need to ask ourselves more often. Continuing on. These people do not keep the king's law so that it is not to your profit, king, to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Oh, and by the way, I will also pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So enrich the king and pass the law to destroy these people. From the king's perspective, <laughs> it's a win-win. This law will get rid of people that my second-in-command that I trust greatly says are really causing some disruption in my kingdom. They're not doing following my laws. They're strange people, apparently. But I'm also going to be enriched. 10,000 talents is a whole lot of moolah, a whole lot of cash. What the king doesn't know is that the reason Haman's doing this is to try to get rid of Mordecai. Only because of the personal affront that Haman felt that Mordecai did not bow down to him. So the king agrees. The king agrees. Mordecai sends a message to Queen Esther. Mordecai sends a message to Queen Esther. Remember, they've been able to stay in touch. Even after she's queen, there's a way that he can get messages to Queen Esther. Here's what he says to her. This is what Jeff read earlier. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. When Haman's law is passed, 
and the Jewish people are actually pulled out and eliminated, don't think that you're going to be able to hide in the palace and avoid the fate of all the other Jewish people. For if you keep silent at this time, Mordecai is very confident that deliverance will come to the Jewish people from some other source. Deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will die. You will perish. God will take care of his people if you are quiet, but you're going to perish. Don't think that God's just going to let you off the hook if you keep silent at this time. And who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He says, maybe the reason that you are in fact queen is for this present moment. Maybe that's why you are in this position of power and responsibility. Maybe that's why somehow out of all these ladies that went through this year-long treatment, you are the one in the king's presence as his new wife. He told her not to think that she was safe just because she's in the palace of the queen. He planted the idea in her mind that maybe she was in fact queen at this time so that she could save her people. Well, Esther devises a plan. Esther devises a plan. She went to the king. Now, let me stop right there and point out again from a historical perspective, the queen going to the king takes a lot of courage because we are told that Someone that goes to the king unsummoned, if the king is not happy that they have effectively bothered him, interrupted whatever his day was, that depending on how upset the king was, he could have the person killed, including, apparently, the queen. But she goes to the king. She puts on her courage garments, and she goes to the king because it's important. Because it's important. She goes anyway. Here's what she says. Esther 4, 5, verse 4. If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come to a feast today that I have prepared for the king. Why would she say the king and Haman? Remember, Haman's the second in charge. So this is a pretty high-level you know, feast, high-level dinner. You got the king, you got the queen, and you got the person who's second in charge in all the country. They came, feasted, they had a good time, big old feast. And the king asked to his wife, what else she desired? I, you wanted me to come, I've come. Is there anything else, my dear, that you want? What else can I do and give to you? She asked that the king and Haman come to lunch again tomorrow. Now Haman's probably thinking, this is great. I get two big banquets in a row. Everybody likes to be invited over for a meal. Haman gets two of them with the king and the queen. Boy, am I a big shot now, right? I've already been second in command. I am now dining with the king and queen two days in a row. They did, and the king asked after that second time what else she desired. His language is very overflowing. His language is up to half my kingdom I'll give to you. He said to Esther, what is your wish, queen Esther, and it shall be granted you? What is your request? Even the half of my kingdom, it will be fulfilled. Anything you want, I will give you. Here's what Esther says in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we, her and her people, have been sold 
I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now, who is sitting there at the dinner table? The king? Queen Esther? Who's the third? Haman. What plan is this she's talking about? It's his plan. So he had gone to the king and said, there's this group of people that aren't following your laws. They don't need to be tolerated. I'll tell you what. I'm going to give you a big donation. Let me get this law passed and take them out. King Ahasuerus said to the queen, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Who is it that's trying to take out you, my queen, and your people? Esther said, A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman. Look at the guts. Pardon my language there, but look at the guts of this apparent 13 to 15 year old girl. She's sitting with the king. I mean, that would be scary enough. I'd be afraid sitting with the, the mayor. I mean, you know, this is the king. And she's also sitting with Haman. And she knows Haman has gotten that law passed. She finds courage enough to say, the person who has passed, who's taking this plot, who's going after your queen and her people, is this guy. Haman is sitting right here. That Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. He should have been. The king has just overflowed himself with praise for his queen. He's willing to give her half the kingdom. If you're Haman, you think he's really going to stop at taking a hard look at you next? The king is very furious at this plot. He leaves the room for a moment. He's, he goes outside, you know, maybe to scream at the, the balcony. I don't know. He went outside of the room where they were eating. While he's gone, Haman's like, I'm in trouble. He falls on his knees, apparently, goes over and leans over Queen Esther and is begging her to spare his life. In some ways, that's an even bigger mistake. When the king returned a moment later, what does the king see? Here's his queen that he's been talking about his love for, giving her up to half the kingdom. And this evil Haman, she's just pointed out, where is he? He's leaning over the queen. He jumps to an immediate thought in his mind. He's trying to attack my beloved. He's trying to do something evil to my queen. Haman is done for. And he's hung. Don't mess with the king's queen. Don't make it seem as if you're after the king's queen to harm her because the king is not going to look very happily at you. Esther saved her people. She saved her people. Now, I'm going to suggest we learn from this. The first lesson, even if you are young and afraid, find courage and act. Even if you're old and afraid, find courage and act. It's hard to imagine, again, a 13 to 15 year old. There aren't any 13 to 15 year olds in here this morning. I made sure to look around. There aren't any 13 to 15 year olds in here, but find courage and act. She did not respond at first when her people were threatened. Remember, Mordecai had to send a message to her. Don't think that you're going to be able to hide in the palace. Maybe you're in there right now at this time because of this circumstance. She apparently had been afraid. 
she had not acted. I would, I'm concluding she may have been afraid and not wanting to stir things up. Maybe if I'm quiet, they won't realize I'm also Jewish. She was alarmed her uncle had to remind her of her responsibilities. So, no matter how old or young we are, act and do the right thing. Help uh, remind others to do the same. There's a statement, uh, paraphrasing from the Dr. Martin Luther King, who said it is always the right time to do the right thing. Don't need permission. You do not need permission to do the right thing. Always. If something needs to be done and it's the right thing, do it. Don't hesitate. Find courage and act. In the second place, God works through his people and events, even if he is not seen. There's no mention anywhere in the book of Esther of God. No one prays in this book. God, in fact, seems completely absent. If you start in Esther chapter 1 and you carefully turn every page and read every verse, there is no mention of God. There's no prayer to God. Nothing. In fact, that's one of the criticisms sometimes that have been offered about this book. God's not in this book, somebody might say. But that's wrong. Don't be fooled by that. God is always here. He is always here. As his people, we should not wait for the heavens to open up and a host of angels to descend with a kind of stuff right in the clouds with some sort of flaming tablet saying, Gene, do this now. You're not going to get, I would think most of the time, some sort of direct message from God telling us what to do. We simply need to act to help the needy, to teach the lost, to show love, and to seek justice against the powerful. Act. Do not wait. Act. Do not wait. And by the way, this is the true importance of this book. The way Esther had to find a way to act with God not mentioned, with God not appearing in the book, is in many ways the way we act today. As I said, I really don't expect the heavens to open up with a brightly flaming list of the things Gene needs to do in the next 30 days, God expects me to act. God expects me to be involved in the lives of other people and to focus my life on doing the right thing. Esther's actions in a time where there's no mention of God, God doesn't show up, God's not in there, there's not even any prayers, is in many ways, just like Huldah, is a very important lesson for us. We have the history and the writings from the past, Romans 15. Things written beforehand were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort and hope of the scriptures might have hope. We know what to do, God's told us. Don't wait around for a special revelation. We need to get busy just like Esther did. In the third place, God and his people 
will always win. Did you notice the confidence that was in what Mordecai told Esther? Don't think that if you, hiding in the palace, are going to escape, because if you don't act, deliverance will come for the Jewish people from some other place. He's confident that God will act through providence and through the situation as it exists to bring safety to the Jewish people. He's confident we need to have the same kind of confidence. <laughs> Society can have all of its struggles, can have all sorts of problems. Christians may have all sorts of problems. God's going to win. Of course he's going to win. And his people will always win if they are living the life they should be living here on the earth. I love the comment that was made in class today. We are, in effect, resurrected now. When we are raised from the waters of baptism to live a new life, it's supposed to be a new life. It's supposed to be a new life. It should be a life that's not concerned by the, the problems that so many people get distracted with in the here and now. It should be a life of love. It should be a life of care. It should be a life of acting rather than reading. We may not always win as soon as we like. I mean, there's no guarantee that it's going to be in 30 minutes or an hour. We may not see the end of the battle in terms of a battle against good and evil while we're still alive. Never doubt that God is in control and victory is certain. Victory is certain. I take those three lessons from the book of Esther. A rather tiny little book that doesn't mention God at all the struggles for courage that a young woman had who saved her people because she acted. Because she acted. I will close by pointing out the most important victory. It may not be even saving your people or saving a family member. The most important victory is the victory over sin that consumes so many of our lives. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. How do we get to that victory in our lives over sin? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Am I going to be the one who saves myself? Do I achieve the victory? Look at what's said here in Corinthians one more time. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. The victory happened over 2,000 years ago, pretty close to it. And that victory is through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. By understanding what Jesus did for us, by wanting to change my life from wrong to right, and by reenacting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, dying to my old way of living, and being raised to walk out of the waters of baptism as a brand new person, living every day as a different resurrected person. That's how the victory comes into my life and it's how it will come into your life as well. The only way to win over sin to have that victory is to be part of God's family. Are you part of God's family? If not, we've just described what you need to do to become a member of God's family. But if you are, if you just haven't felt that victory is close, if you have felt defeated, or if you just haven't really felt the way to have the courage 
to do what needs to be done, to act, then we can always pray to God for strength, for wisdom, for forgiveness, take our concerns to the Father, and receive that strength to live closer to Him today and tomorrow. The call is always open to each of us. If there's a way we can be of help, please come now as we stand and sing. <laughs>